0: Socks down that your granny bought you. You don't have to pretend that you like them. Smash another chocolate in your face and pour yourself a little glass of sherry. It's Christmas, and it's a very special edition, a two-part edition of the Two Shot Podcast. Now, on the 6th of July this year, myself and producer Griff launched the first episode. Twenty-two weeks later, we're still having incredible guests. We're proud of each and every episode. We are proud and we want to say thank you to... Vicky McClure, Neil Morrissey, Susan Lynch, William Ash, Kate Ashfield, Danny, you know the one, Michael Smiley, Maya Sondi, Thomas Turgus, Joseph Gilgan, Sanjeev Baska, Andy Nyman, Lauren Socker, Joe Sims, Tamsin Althwaite, Tony Pitts, Michael Balligan, Amanda Abington, Thomas Coombs, Danny Mays, Laura nixon Branner, Andy Sheridan, Rebecca Callard. <gasps> Nearly lost it towards the end. We didn't know how it was going to go. We honestly didn't. We we had a little mission and it's just gone from strength to strength. We are thrilled to bits and we're also thrilled that you joined us and you've been so supportive. So a massive thank you to you. Of course, we're excited about 2018 and the guests that we're going to have on. But this week, we're taking a look back to 2017 and all the fantastic people that came on. Now... few weeks ago myself and producer Griff asked you to send in uh, not necessarily best bits because certainly in our mind we can't sort of pick out something that was best because they're like our little children we're proud of all of them but little moments little things that touched you or inspired you or uh, made you cry made you laugh whatever and you rose to the occasion so that is what These two part episodes are, so the first part, what we're going to do, I'm going to pop back every so often, hopefully I won't be too annoying, but I want to give you a shout out and say what your best bits are because we were just overwhelmed. So what we're going to do, we're going to kick things off. David Lum and Teresa Murphy, we're going to kick off with your Kick off? Can't even speak. I'm going to kick off with your favourite bit, with Neil Morrissey, the lovely Neil. Now, the great thing is, right, about these two episodes, if you're just joining us now, you're going to get a little taster, or maybe you haven't heard all the episodes, so you'll get a little taster of that person and of that episode. You can go back, you can download. It's incredible. So, David Lum, Theresa Murphy. It's Neil Morrissey. We're then going to go to Amanda Abington. And that little section was voted for by at Tonka Hertz. Tonka Hertz? Tonka Hertz, you know the one. And then we're going to go to the mighty Tony Pitts. Jen Mediano, that was one of yours. So I think we should just do this, okay? Strap in. Let's go.
1: And then there were consequences to certain situations. If you um, said, oh, yeah, I really miss my mum and dad, I really miss my brothers or whatever, then there'd be a social worker visit that came on the back of that. You know, oh, I really want to go out and kick a pigeon. Oh, you want to kill things, do you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm 10, is what yeah. I, would, I wish I was able to say. Because they, they did do an IQ test on us. You know, when you get in there, you do this test where they put you in a room with a book. And they tell you to, uh, they put a timer on and say, right, open the book at page one. And then you answer the questions. And that's like a, a Mensa type test, you know, it gets slightly more difficult as you get through. And I finished this thing in about 20 minutes. And they came back into the room after about half an hour. And I was just sitting there twiddling my thumbs. And they went, What are you doing? And I said, Well, I've done it. And they said, Well, you can't have. I said, I have. And they said, How long what, what, uh, you know, and they looked at it and it was all correct. They didn't believe it. They got another book out and then sat there and watched me do it in 15 or 20 minutes. But it turns out I had an IQ of about 156, you know, something like that, which is pretty oh, good, apparently. Yeah. And um, so from then on, they, everything that I did, when they said, What do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember saying, Raffles or something like that. I want to be a cat burglar. <laughs> <laughs> that stayed on my record. And I've got all my records until the day. I left the care home system at 18 years yeah. old. That I wanted to be a profe- that my ambition was to be a professional burglar. <laughs> Can you imagine from the from the imagination of a 10 year old the excitement of climbing over the roofs and sneaking in through windows and taking a lady's diamond with a bit of lace? Well, you know, of course. At the moment, my son wants to be a spy. Correct. Yeah. You know, we want this exciting sort of imagination thing. So, because I because of the IQ matched with what my I'd said my ambitions were, then they they had me down as
0: possible dangerous you know so you were obviously naturally very bright as a kid yeah how did all this impact school life and education well I was then
1: um after I was out of the uh, care home system the, the um, um the assessment center I went to a place in in Burton-on-Trent and I wasn't getting on with the other kids some kid was threatening me and I hit him with a chair <laughs> <laughs> and bit him bit his face quite severely and they thought it's best to put me somewhere else, where, from away place. from this family. Yeah, because it was a kid I had a fight with in the care, in the first care, and I had a fight with him because uh, he tried to fag me, really, you know, if you call it in the public school sense, tried to make me a slave. And so I hit him, and then his big brother, um, who was like fourteen when I was ten or eleven, big difference in those days, uh, was threatening to, to to hurt me, to hurt me, he's going to hurt me, leave me notes in my pigeonhole and everything. So I just picked a chair up and whacked him on the head with it, and then. I was in a frenzy, you know, and it took a few staff members to take me up to drag me off him. But they decided it was best then to put me somewhere else, and that's when I ended up in Stoke on Trent with um, Aunt. I ended up with Auntie Margaret. I wasn't the first case, but I hadn't been to a normal school for over a year, and then I went into the school and they did a test on me, and I just was in the top stream. So it was if that was handy. There was three streams, like I think maybe four: A, B, C, and D, and I was in the A stream. So, and I got on great there, you know, there was people of, you know, who are on the same level, smarter and on the same level. And uh, that was, that was okay. I was a, able to pick that up quite quickly and get into the school routine. I hated doing homework, but I passed all my exams, you yeah. know, every week and every month or whatever they did. But I was a bit naughty.
0: <laughs> so, well, did, you
1: see, did you feel happier at that school? I always you, loved school. I loved bit, having my mind occupied and I loved learning, you know, um, I was a bit cheeky, so some teachers hated me, and that's the the, the classes that I learnt less in. Um, when the teacher wasn't so good, really, yeah. you know, if I could um, um, if I could challenge a teacher on a particular point and they didn't have an answer, then to me they were they would be seen as a little bit lower, you know. And um, the ones who who could really look after you, you know, in a in a sense of keeping you occupied, etc. And one of those women was a woman called Sheila Steele, um, who um, was an amazing English teacher. We had such a weak English teacher called Mr. Keyes. We used to throw the board rubber at him, you know. It was. Um, anyway, what end of term happened, Mr. Keyes was no longer, and in his place was Sheila Steele. And Sheila Steele. Good name. Fantastic name, yeah. isn't it? Because she was a bit scary. Um, she, uh, within about three minutes of the opening of the class, because I don't know if she'd had a report about who was going to be trouble. Um, she took me out of the class, slammed me against the wall, pushed a script in my
0: chest and said, you're in the school play. Really? Learn Colonel Jeffries." And is, is that where the sort of, the acting bug sort of started to happen 100%. For you? So it was enforced on you? Was it not, was, did you not think about it prior to that? Not in the slightest. I hadn't any aspirations
1: to be anywhere near a stage or having anything to do with it. And um, she said, you know, learn... Anyway, as it turns out, we have the rehearsals. They're after school. I'm suddenly being occupied. I'm I'm nervous, obviously. How old are you at this point? I must have been twelve, right? Eleven and a bit, twelve, and um, so I've got to learn this part. And being in the school play, where I'm now meeting different people from different years as well, in different classes. Oh, because, of course,
0: they're all bunched together for the school Everyone's like, bunched together yeah.
1: from different classes and different um, and people who wanted to be in it as well. you know. And I didn't know I wanted to be. But I'm getting praise all of a sudden. And, and then when you're actually doing the play, you're getting applause. The care home, pardon me, loved it because um, I'm doing something. I'm doing something after school. I've got a new interest, etc. cetera. I started being less naughty. And it's so like it worked on so many levels. And I, and I absolutely loved it. I loved getting laughs yeah. on stage because I was a cheeky little chappy anyway. And I loved getting um, applause at the end of it. So, in a sense, I'm getting the loving and the patting and the, the sort of, you know, the parental things that you, you miss or you didn't know you missed until you, don't, um, until you start getting it again. I was getting all of that all of a sudden through this acting stuff
0: you really found a focus because of this play.
1: And if you, send, if you think about it, a family, because then we started to get into youth drama, local youth drama, and they'd welcome you with open arms. It was this thing, yes, come in, have a go. Oh, my God, aren't you good? Oh, that's good. Yes, praise, love, stroking, yeah. etc. stuff that I was obviously missing but didn't know. And there, there was my family, was this acting fraternity.
0: And what was school like when you were growing up?
2: Um, it was okay i didn 't really like school. I was bullied quite a bit as a kid i had a, I had a really bad time at primary school i was i was uh, yeah i didn 't have a great time I, I hated it and and for about three years I was really bullied and and uh, didn 't want to go to school and didn 't tell my mum for a bit so it was so it was um it was horrible it was horrible
0: who did you tell
2: i told uh, in the end I told my mum because it got unbearable. And, uh, and I couldn't, I, I would be crying every morning about, and not wanting to go in. And she was like, what's the, I said, these girls are making my life horrible mummy, And I don't know what I'm going to do. And they keep saying, you know, if, if I tell anybody, then something will happen to you. And yeah, it was horrible. Was it, was it physical or? It got physical and it got, uh. Towards the end, it got physical. I'd get pushed around in the cloakrooms, and my stuff would get stolen and hidden, and mm-hmm. they would take my pack lunch, so I didn't have anything to eat. And things, just things like that. And now I think back, I think, oh God, you poor, you poor little girl. You should yeah. have, you know, you should have spoken up, but and I and I didn't for a long time because I, but only because I was scared. You of know, so you're scared of
0: a lot of people. A lot of people happen. don't speak up. No. that. so now
2: I am fiercely aware of anything like that. I have become very kind of militant about it. I watched these two like a hawk. You know my two kids like about them being decent children and not and 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 calling bullying out and them knowing that actually you don't treat people like that, and no. actually you have to be the, the the good person and be nice and be kind um
0: well, it's interesting isn't it when you see your children playing like with their friends mm. and you are watching them if if they're in your house and yeah. you're looking after the other children yeah. and if you see your child. Oh, I pull. I mean, I'm straight away. I am out.
2: You don't do that, and I'm, you know, and with them, I'm all about the manners and all about you know. I don't care how you behave with me in the house. You know, we can have like a, a, a different dialogue. You know, we can muck about. But actually, if you're in other people's houses, then I want you to say please. I want you to say thank you. I want you to be. I want you to. Talk to adults. I want you to be able to talk to adults and have a dialogue with them. I don't want this kind of monosyllabic, no please and thank you. I'm, I'm all about the manners and I'm all about just being a nice, bringing them up to be decent people within society. But they can, you know, we, we swear and do all sorts of things in the house when it's just us and they know the difference and I think that's important. They know, they, they are getting values, I think. They're, they're learning about what's right and wrong and I think that's because I've, because I had, to, I mean, I had a terrible childhood in terms of school. I hated it and I hated going to school and I hated that, you know, because I felt very, um, always felt on the outside at school. I was never part of a, a group of people because yeah. I was never made to feel welcome, you know, I was always kind of... And I don't know why, I, don't you know, I, I, I think because I always tried to maybe be over-nice with people and try and, you know...
0: Try and fit in.
2: Yeah, ingratiate myself yeah. to people and actually that's just like, no... But I do, yeah, so I'm well aware. I'm I'm aware of them being decent people and and making sure that they are people that that adults want to hang out with. Do you know what I mean? That just yeah. don't go. Oh God, no, no, no. Well,
0: There's nothing worse than those sort of, as you say, sort of monosyllabic. Yeah, yeah. Who don't?
2: Who don't? You know? Who don't go? Yes, please. Or yeah. I'm like, what? Come on, mate. You know, that's just page one. That's manners. That's just being a decent person. Please and thank you doesn't cost anything, It's and, and that, you know, you, I see that now when I'm working, you know, people who just kind of don't, who, on set, who just, just take stuff and don't say thank you. I'm like, really? Are we going to, this is the way we're behaving now, is it that you just...
0: What, they've just brought you that coffee and you're not going to say see, thank I you?
2: See, I get really cross with things like that, Craig, I really do. I find it really, uh, maybe I'm being over the top about no, it. No, I, I don't just, think But I are. just think, you know, it's that's just... Page one of being a decent person is just acknowledging that somebody's done something for you.
0: And they didn't have to do that. No, was.
2: they didn't. And, and, and the fact that people... That, that I've, and I find it a lot, you know, I do find it a lot working on set that people just take stuff and I'm like, oh, okay. It's interesting that you didn't even acknowledge that person and you were too busy texting someone on your phone. Okay. That's, but that for me is like the measure... I, I then get the measure of that person. I think, oh, okay, then...
0: What well, speaks volumes about that person? I think. I, do it,
2: I think it does.
0: Because I've got a bit of a thing. you know when you you queue up and you 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 go and get your mm. your dinner, you go and mm. get your lunch, mm-hmm. and sometimes if a runner or a third goes, come on, come to the front. I say no, no, yeah, no, no, I no, 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 no. Yeah, no. that's what I do. All these people are all crew. They've been here before me. Yeah, I've been sat on my ass having little breaks. Mm. They haven't. Yeah, we could, we're all, no one's going to starve. We're all going to eat.
2: Well, exactly. That's what I'm like. That's right. That's what I do. That's, yeah. Because yeah, I just, it, you know, nobody's more important than anybody else on any film set. I think. No. Because if you didn't have the grip, and you didn't have the makeup artists and you didn't have the essays, you wouldn't be making that thing. You know, well, everybody you can, is equally as important.
0: You can tell those sets where you're not an ensemble. Mm. And yeah, you feel it. And the, the zero hierarchy. Yeah. between everybody, and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh exactly. The harmony is not yeah, there, and there's an not. imbalance.
2: Yeah, there is, and it feels. It, you, you start. It, it just doesn't feel. You don't feel safe in that environment. I think you just feel a bit like, oh well, you know, somebody's more important than anybody else. I, I've never really understood that, especially in the job we do. Especially, you no, know, just because you're number one on the call sheet, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything more important than somebody who's just made a great big rig to light you. Yeah,
0: it it means absolutely nothing. It really doesn't. (laughs) In the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think
2: so. Because, you know, also, you know, we're we're telling stories, that's it. You know, that's it. You know, we're not not going into war-torn Syria, do you know what I mean? We are telling stories. And we're all doing it together. And we're all doing it and we're trying to make the best of it and make a a, a decent, whatever it is we're doing, whether it's theatre, film or television, you're all working towards, like, a common goal of making something that people want to watch. And I think if you have somebody who's just this ego that comes in, it's it's just, it it, 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 it imbalances the harmony, I think. And you just, you automatically go, oh, oh God, I'm dealing with an arsehole. Okay, all right. And you have does, to deal with that now as well.
0: It does reflect in the work at the end of it the does. day. Because even if uh, someone watches it back and they would say to you, oh, well, I didn't see anything wrong with that. And yeah. You go, well, do you know what? <laughs> yeah. I can't watch it because that's left such a bad taste Mm. in my mouth. All I can, all I've got is the memories of when we actually did that Mm,
2: and how difficult they made that.
0: Yeah. Whoever it is, whoever
2: it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I love a harmonious set and I really try and strive to make everything I do as enjoyable and as, as happy as possible.
3: How was it, growing up there? Um... For you, personally? Yeah. Um... Right, well, I'll start with I don't know, and then... (laughs) Because I don't know. I'll I'll give you a... What was... Was uh, was it just you, or is it...? No, I'm one of the oldest of three boys. I went to... I was the oldest uh, boy of... uh, Well, I am the oldest boy of a steel worker, and uh, my mum works in old people's home. And... um, I... Do you have a good relationship with your brothers? Uh, with my brothers, yeah, yeah, I, I don't have a bad relationship. I, I, I think the truth is, I'm, um, and I felt, I felt all my life, and I think it's, uh, this is one of the themes of, of Funny Car. I've always felt like a cuckoo, really. I've Always felt like in the not in the right nest, right? Necessarily, I don't. I don't mean that. I, I, I could be. I was the. Um, and I built a lot of armor in the early years. I realised that I put, you know, I'm, I'm covering tattoos. I, 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 you know, I did boxing and muscled up and all that. So I, I put lots of armor on as a kid to, uh, to
0: protect from what? To,
3: well, because I think if I should actually, if I look like how I feel inside, I'd look like Charlotte Brontë. <laughs> I think that, and I think that I made that mistake as a kid of comparing my insides to people's outsides. Right, I think there's a lot of that going on, uh, and I also think. Do you think that's to do with just that it was just within you, or was it something with with school? Or? No, no, I think it's how you made. I think it's how you made. I yeah. don't. I think. I think there. Uh, I've resisted. Um, I've resisted therapy, or the you know the few of kilometres experiences when I've tried to unravel because I think it is a kind of unraveling. I don't. Um, um, I don't, I don't really know. And I've got sort of, I have big sense memories of being a kid growing up in Sheffield. I remember that I could be funny. I remember that being, uh, and I thought, oh, quite like that. When you were little. Yeah. Like, make it, making little, the adults laugh. Like, making the adults laugh, yeah, yeah making that, and even, and, and, um, I remember making angry adults, seeing uh, anger in their face and then then they'd have to turn away because I'd made them laugh and I thought, oh, that's quite useful to me. I
0: think we all need a bit of Tony Pitts in our life. I know that episode struck a chord with quite a lot of people. The one interesting thing uh, that has been quite touching for me going back and listening to all the episodes. Because you forget, you, you talk to so many people and you forget little bits. But the one thing that they all have in common, all the episodes, and of course they're all different because you know everybody's story and journey is different. The one thing that they all have in common is everybody that's come on has been super honest and, and really open. And it's actually... Uh, a quite a difficult thing when you you know, you're sat with somebody. Some people, you know, don't know me who sit down and you've got a microphone near your face and you're talking about deep and meaningful and personal stuff, you know, sometimes really personal. Uh, so that's been incredible. Um, so a massive thank you to everybody and for you for listening. So let's move on. Where are we going now? This next batch of clips. The first one, we're gonna go back to East London and we're gonna sit down with Kate Ashfield. And this clip was nominated by Art I Am Just Franny on Twitter. We're then gonna go other side of London and we're gonna sit down with Sanjeev Bhaskar. And then Michael Begley messaged us to say how much he enjoyed and was touched and moved by the Susan Lynch episode. So let's sit down and listen to those three. I'll see you in a bit. I mean, did you have certain expectations of what it was going to be like and they didn't meet that, or...?
4: Well, I think I just found it all quite embarrassing, and... What, the actual...? Actual lessons and doing the things, and um, I thought it would be more... Acting. So then, when you had to do a movement class or voice classes or like lie on the floor and feel your sacrum and all these kind of things, I was just mortified, you know, and and didn't really get on with that at all. And
0: and did you have anybody that was a bit of a kindred spirit there that was feeling the same as you, or were they all sort of throwing themselves into it? A-
4: they were a bit. They were yeah. And I think they thought I was a bit stupid because I should have just got on with it, but I just. Just couldn't get past that embarrassment, really, and and then I think they liked other people at that drama school, and so you know, you know the way they give they do plays and they give people different parts, and so I never really got any big parts because yeah, you know, I don't think they saw me doing it.
0: And didn't that none of the tutors sort of pull you aside and go, "Look, is everything all right?" Because they would have seen that you were quite tense and not enjoying certain stuff.
4: Yeah, Maybe they thought it was more rebellious than it was meant to be. Maybe they thought I was kind of sitting there, like, kind of deciding I didn't like it or something like that, which it wasn't really.
0: But did you feel it was coming across as rebellious? Uh,
4: no, I do remember one teacher, she did think I was not joining in. Um, but I didn't really, yeah. But then at the end of the second year there, the guy that ran the college asked to speak to me and said... He said, I think your voice would grate on an audience's ears if they had to listen to it for too long. No. Yeah. So he said, I want you to go home and think about whether you should come back next year.
0: And what year was this? Was
5: this in the says, first year? That, that was the second year, the second end of the second
4: year. year. So then I went home and was really upset. I was like, oh my God, do you think I can ever do this? It's ridiculous. And I thought, oh, I'll just go back. Because I, I talked to my mum about it. She's like, just finish the year because then you've got your qualification you could then do another qualification if you don't want to do that and um and then I went back and he said um then they were casting the new parts and he said what what part would you like to get in these plays this term and I was really surprised I said I didn't think I had a choice he said why not I said because what you said to me at the end of last term and he went what did I say no he didn't so then so I told him what he said and then he said "Ah, yeah I was just testing to see if you'd leave or not I said were you and he kind of like shrugs and you think so these this kind of like them trying to see how strong you are, how yeah. good at rejection you'll be. But when you're kind of just like, 19 or whatever, you just don't know how that all works, you know, you take it really personally. But anyway, so then they did give me a, uh, a chance in the third year to do a play. But then, yeah, anyway, so it was all a kind of really different experience to school and straightforward you're learning. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And throughout that three years, apart from that instant, did you ever think, ah, oh, I don't know if really this is for me, I don't know if this is the path I should be going down? If you... Yeah,
4: I think so, because well, I'd really enjoyed it before I went to drama school. I just kind of really enjoyed doing plays and thought it was really good fun. And then it became really... You became really sort of self-aware of how you stand, how you speak... And it kind of felt really almost like it wasn't as much fun anymore.
0: So the big, is it because the stakes got higher in that situation? Yeah. The, the fun was lost.
4: Yeah, and I suppose it became... It's like if you drew a picture and people are going, oh, your pictures are really great, and then someone starts really analysing what you've done here and there. It could still have been really great before, but then you start trying to perfect things and, and be aw- much more aware of yourself and you become really self-critical and... um yeah, I don't think I don't think that's I think that's kind of a bit of a problem with with dramas because it was back then, because I think after that, people uh, people were encouraged to be themselves a bit yeah. more. But then it was all about RP and being this neutral kind of vessel that could then have put any character on top of that.
6: So there were kind of few issues I remember with the teachers now probably more retrospective than at the time, Uh, with one teacher in particular, uh, Mrs Youngman, who's probably no longer around. I know, but still, if
0: there's anything about it, let's name and shame, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not that kind of podcast, but if we want to go there, it can be anything we want.
6: I feel safe in the knowledge that she was pretty old then, actually. She she looked like uh, John Pertwee. uh, and Uh, she? Wurzel Gummidge-esque. More Doctor Who actually, the Moorzel Gummidge. Um, But she was horrible, and she was particularly (laughs) horrible to me. Um, I was kind of good at English. I was good early on. I was an early reader and stuff like that, way ahead of my class, and she just couldn't handle that. And I remember her telling my mum that my mum shouldn't – she said to my mum, do you sort of, you know, read with him and teach English at home? And my mum said, yes. Uh, My mum had been an English teacher in India before she came here. And she said, I don't think you should – it's kind of like he's he's you know disrupting the class, <laughs> and it was, and I, because I remember I was the first kid in the class to be able to spell submarine, and th- she was incensed by that. And you look back on it, you try to find other reasons for it, just to be generous. But yeah, there were none really. She was kind of like closet, not particularly closet, kind of Nazi John look like out there my god that's awful it was at the time you just kind of deal with it yeah you and then by the time i got to junior school that was generally quite happy there were more asian kids there and that was kind of fine and then i went to secondary school i went to a comp uh which was uh about a mile and a half from where i lived and that was all right for the first few years my last few years there were pretty challenging so and i think I mean, I'm grateful for those experiences now, but they really were very formative. In, in, in what way were they challenging? Well, kind of. Personally either, or, or in
0: educationally?
6: A bit of both. I mean, I, I, the teachers weren't particularly good. You know, classes were huge. Uh, so, educationally, it wasn't great. It's much better now. I've kind of been back since and it, it looks like a great school. But at that time, that wasn't so good. But also, uh, you know at that time, early '80s, they were kind of, you know racism was pretty much on the streets. It was kind of pretty overt. So the National Front would be marching, you know, around, and they would recruit outside the school, and uh, and there was about about a third of the school was kind of uh, non-white. So it was a sizable minority. So there was a lot of tension within the school as well. And uh, there was I remember there was a day when I kind of came in and one of the sort of like, you know, more prominent Asian characters came up to me and he said, listen, you can't speak to white people anymore. And I said, "Right, well, I don't know if it's escaped your attention where we're living, but I mean, that may be difficult. And he said, no, you can't talk to any of the white kids in the school because it's kind of it's us versus them. And I said, well, look, they've done nothing to me, so I'm not going to stop talking to them. And he yeah. said, you know, well you're either with us or you're against us. And I said, oh, I'm not with anyone or against anyone. So I started to get chants from the kind of uh, uh, the Asian kids, particularly of white man, white man, white man, whenever the, I kind of came in school. And one of the things that kind of, uh, again, retrospectively troubled me about that was that it was just a really poor saying to come up with i mean if they'd asked me i would have come up with something better
3: <laughs> than simply
6: white man and i got a packy stuff anyway from from the from the white kids so yeah. it was it was a great lesson for me in terms of uh, finding your tribe because i suddenly realized that it actually it wasn't based on uh gender it wasn't based on color it wasn't based on culture uh, you know all of those things can you know help or help you find a way or add to it or or whatever but none of those things uh, were what was central to who i was
7: yeah i was i was really i was really really lucky i had i had in my primary and secondary education i had people that really saw me you know and really really nurtured that in me and and then sean hollywood was the king really because he he literally saw me from the age of like nine, ten, till i was 17 picked the right speeches for me for drama school you know and then sent me on my way and then when i was at drama school he always came to london three times sorry he's dead now which is why i speak about him in the No,
0: I want to go back to him. I want to talk more about Sean Hollywood because a lot of people have had uh, certain people who are massive inspirations in their life and I know that he was Mm. so much because we have spoken about this before, obviously. Yeah. Um, But the type of stuff that he would do for you, when you said to him that you were thinking about auditioning for drama school, what was his reaction there with you?
7: it's so difficult for me to explain his character because he was such a sort of. He wasn't like some sycophantic drama teacher. No. who was just like, I want all my ducklings to do well. He didn't have that sort of. He had a very.
0: No, I know you do a very good impression of Sean Hollywood, which one, uh, hopefully
3: we're going to get <laughs> at some point. I'm going to try, but he
7: he literally go. You go like you'd be leaving his house, and he go. And you go, Sean, you know, I, I have thought about it. And and like, I, I do think that maybe I'll give, you know, drama school a try. And he go, yes, yes, you cow, <laughs> of course. And shut the door. <laughs> and that was it. He didn't have any, like, you know, he called everybody cows, you know. I remember once saying to him, I was in a Neil Simon. He loved Neil Simon. And actually, he's given me that. I love Neil Simon. I think it's just sublime comedy. And he, um, you know, I was just a bit fed up. I was a teenager. You know, this is the thing. A lot of my time with Sean, I was a nonchalant, (laughs) grumpy teenager, you know. You
0: were a teenager. Everybody's a nonchalant, grumpy teenager. So I
7: remember, like, um, coming to a rehearsal, and it was for a Neil Simon play, and I was playing a prostitute. You know, I only had a couple of lines, (laughs) and it was a (laughs) one-act play. And um, I, I came out, and I just went, oh, Sean, you know, I just really... I just I just don't really know how to play this part. I just really don't know how to say these lines. And he went, oh, well, that's a shame. That's a shame because these are the kind of roles you're going to be playing all your life.
4: <laughs>
7: and that was, that was his, he had, and he was right. I've played so many prostitutes. Um, so, you know, it's like he had this sort of brilliant wit about him. And it kept you down to earth, you know, it kept you very grounded because yeah. he totally supported your talent. But he was also like, you've got to work really hard. And, you know, you, um, yeah. You, I think you it's, so,
0: it's so important not to have the bullshit early on. How brilliant that you didn't have that because I mean because there is enough bullshit later on I think in this business but if you've got somebody that grounds you so early on yeah and makes you work hard for them because you you I think you did want to please him didn't you you did oh wanna, my god like you, did, you there never was wanted something to let him it. down
7: no no and when he smiled like when he went you knew that when Sean went very good
0: very good. Because he does seem like—I mean, I—I'm always very sad that I never got to meet him. Because you do speak about him, you put him on such a high pedestal. I know he was such an amazing inspiration for you. Um, Was he quite a man of few words? So then, when he did say something, or he did raise a smile, yeah, big time. I've done all right there. Yeah,
7: he—he and he was like that with everyone across the board. You know, he just had a way about him. You know, in the drama group that we were all in, we've got a book of insults and it's the the book of notes and directions that Sean has given over the past, you know, the the time that that, um, he was alive and that dates back from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You know, but it's all one-liners of Sean going, you know, Pauline Lynch knows her lines you know, to, to people or um, I, I could go to Woolworths and get someone to do this better than you, um, you know, and he had these kind of quips, but he also had this amazing pride, you know, and you absolutely saw it. And I, I remember being in the dressing room before you went on stage and the passion that he had and, and how he articulated the importance of being a group and what you were about to do in front of another group of people and that's never left me you know that sense of that why you're doing it is 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 a communal thing and and i think we live in an age now where community is is a really precious thing and we have to look after it and if there's a way that you can join people together and you can bring people together it's really really important to um to do that because you know we are getting more and more about oneself you know everything's about you know the individual yeah and uh you know what where i came from and th- the whole reason that i wanted to act was absolutely about the opposite of that so it was always really really tricky for me arcing a career because i i i, I find it really impossible to think from what the sense of oneself. Um, and actually it, it, it's it's incredibly truthful and it's been right because the times when I've not been happy at work have been when it hasn't been a community. So for me, it's still as important as it was when I was really young, you know, so... Um,
0: How incredible that you've held on to that, that you learned so young.
7: Yeah, but I I, I think it would have been impossible for me not to, because that was my, that was my, um, idea of what storytelling was. It was always about two groups of people, the people that that tell the story and the people that are listening. And, and, you know, as soon as it becomes about me or the idea that, you know, and that's why the people that I have forged very, very close relationships with in this business, are the people that I really genuinely connected with and and actually they are the people that have championed me. So it's, it's always sort of really ultimately worked in my favour um, and the people that I don't get jobs with are normally the people that I shouldn't because I probably wouldn't work well in certain environments. So it's interesting, it's like you have to listen to the fact that somewhere You know, there is a through line, even though our business is totally illogical and it doesn't have a through line. But somewhere within yourself, you know, your own sense of self and why you do it, there is one. There has to be, because otherwise you wouldn't do it because it's a load of shite, a lot of it.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, Just so, kind of just want to jump back. So, do you, I don't think i asked this to anybody yet. Do you remember what you... What speeches you auditioned?
7: Yeah, for drama school yeah, in? I do. I did. Um, I did. Uh, crimes of the Heart, Babe, Babe from Crimes of the Heart. That was chosen by Sean, and I did Hermione uh, from A Winter's Tale, chosen by Sean.
0: Did he uh, drill you on? Did he help you? Yeah. yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. He was amazing.
0: And so then, when you auditioned and successfully got into drama school. What was what was his reaction?
7: Oh, uh, uh, it was is that a
0: stupid question. No, of course he's no, going to be was, absolutely it, over the moon. But
7: he he was there was nothing more joyous for Sean than coming to London, going to see some shows. I went to see Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell with Peter O'Toole in it yeah. with Sean. Sean used to watch,
0: and obviously he chose. Did he oh, take yeah. you to see big that big time? Yeah. yeah.
7: He, he, he found the best shows in London and he would take you. And like, you know, you were at drama school. It was really, you could never have gone to see those shows. He'd pay for the ticket. He'd take you there. He'd take you and all the other people from the drama group that were in London. You know, there was a, there was quite a few of us at that time. You know, there was, uh, um, people at RADA, there was, you know, there was a few people from the group, which is such a credit to him, that were all at drama school at that time. And he used to, you know, like, maybe one or two of you would go to the theatre. I I remember going to see Geoffrey Bernard as Unwell with them. And then, like, take everybody out for a meal. And he'd pay for everything. And his pride was just, I've got my kids from this little tiny town we all read players in a council house in Newry and here they are at drama school. And that for him was, you could see it. He was in his element that we sat around a table, you know, with all his kids who were, who, who, who were flying, you know. And, yeah, he was such an amazing guy. Sorry, I'm actually getting quite emotional, but I do talking about him because...
0: He totally changed my life. I will. I don't want to change the subject.
7: (laughs) I'm going to have a drink of water. Have
0: a drink of water. I remember saying to producer Griff, um, that I thought it it might feel odd. Uh, Sat down, sat down, sitting down and not necessarily interviewing, because we don't really do interviews per se, but sitting down and talking with my wife... Uh, turns out, it wasn't. Yeah, I even I learned some things that I didn't know. I might have even said that on the episode. But massive thank you, Susan. I really appreciate it. And to Sanjeev and to Kate. So where are we going now? Listen up. John Earls and Patricia Cardis. You nominated Thomas Coombs. But first, we've got Lorna Nixon-Brown, the lovely Lorna. And then... We're gonna go back to drama school with Andy Sheridan. Enjoy.
8: I'm not a great example because I had a very personal um ex- my grandfather died, he was like a father figure to me. And it was so I was very much grieving. I was in a different space. So it's hard for me to separate that experience from the actual experience of third year. If you does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um
8: but uh, one thing i definitely recognise is this almost this obsession with our physical appearance into third year from before we couldn't give a shit before literally like everyone just wore that, what they wanted and we were all like
0: sweaty, sweaty clothes.
8: but like we you, we were in our character we were in the space of our characters Do you know what i mean we weren't so hyper aware of our physical of our self but maybe because um, at
0: that point you were starting to be judged yes by the outside yes. yeah. and
8: this is, this is you know the problem sometimes with this industry that for women especially that there's this kind of hyper awareness of you know your your uh, physical appearance and you know adhering to this standard ideal standard of beauty you know having yeah. to look a certain way and uh I, I i felt the pressure of that for sure um and you know did, that did, that's a shame really
0: did what was going on in your personal life obviously impacted on your third year? Um, Do you feel it knocked you off kilter in a way?
8: I don't like to to say for certain, I don't know for certain, but um, I know that I was kind of detached from it. It kind of put things into perspective and I had kind of lost touch with my family because I'd been immersed in this new world, a drama centre. Inevitably kind of distanced myself from them just because I literally physically was further away from them, but emotionally too. And then suddenly lost, like, the rock in my family.
9: Before I had the scholarship audition, I wrote loads of begging letters, basically. I I went in the library in Essex and I found... Which I've just remembered... It must have been the Spotlight books. It must have been um, the Big Fat Spotlight. Yeah. And well, for some had, reason, they had them in the library. They had those in, in South the library. In Library. Wow. So I raked through them and <laughs> found <laughs> just randomly actors I liked. I remember writing to David Jason, Rick Mayle, um, all sorts of people. Like, And I was just like, oh, yeah. And I got all their agent and wrote. So I've got all the replies because a lot of the replies are not from them, but from the agent. But loads did reply as well got ones from david jason and all sorts yeah but um i only got one uh, literally i'd say 70 letters i wrote um i got one uh contribution which obviously was not going to pay for me for drama school but still was meant the world of course it did i Um, mean yeah you're not the first
0: person to say that when you get in and you can't afford you've you can't just sit on your arse and expect someone to pay. No. You've got to write the letters. You've got to get in touch with those people. Yeah, and I know they it, must... They're, because they're... at some point, all those people may have been in your position. Oh, exactly.
9: And uh, now I am an actor. I, I do think, like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, Christ. Is, back then, I was like, oh, they're, they're acting. They must be. They've loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be all right. They can send it to me. So I'd let letter back from whoever going, no, I'm sorry. Uh, really genuine letters that would come back. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, fair enough, but... Yeah, the one I did get back was from Nigel Hawthorne. Um, He gave me 500 quid. Wow. uh, And the most lovely letter which I've kept. Um, And he apologised. He was actually on the board of Guildford as well. He said, I wish you'd... I'm sorry it's not more. I'm in in hospital. I haven't been able to work for a while. Um, I'm not very well and my mum my mum read it she's like send it back send it back oh. like, so i wrote him a letter saying oh, please can i send this back i won't ca- i won't cash it um and he wrote me back again no 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 i insist um and he died sh- very short like weeks months after that uh, i never actually got to meet him after i got into Guildford. um from not being very well um yeah he he didn't recover um but i've yeah, never forgotten that it's such a lovely lovely thing as i've always yeah had a soft spot for nige to say the least for that um yeah well
0: in a way he was one of your first supporters i think that's that's a Major. thing some
9: random guy writing to you 500 know, quid but how brilliant that you say you wrote sort of 70 plus letters
0: maybe mm. but to get that one thing yeah meant the world of course it wasn't going to pay for all your fees for three years. No. But it was more about what it meant.
9: Oh, yeah, yeah. What it what it meant, which is, yeah, it blew me away. And it's still thinking about it. I've still got the letter and everything, which is, yeah. Um, yeah, just amazing of him. Um, but I've she, kept that mentality, like, I think even to now, that kind of, I've, I've never really had, in terms of a career, don't get it wrong, you've always got to have a bit of luck and I've had luck, but I've always kept that. Uh, going to get it, going to, uh, not sitting on my laurels. Strong work ethic. Yeah, writing to people as well. And even, not even just in the job, but yeah, obviously outside the job.
5: You've asked me about drama school now. I, I, I spent three years kind of continually questioning because the first year they told you kind of, they kind of told you you were shit, do you know what I mean? And yeah. the second year you kind of questioned, well, if, if, I, if I'm shit, why am I here? And then the third year, you go. Well, I can't be that shit, or else they wouldn't have ever let me in. I'll do a bit of what I did before before I got in. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it was good. I mean, there was some good tutors. It was very political. Um, they sacked some of our favourite tutors. We took over the college. We did a city. We taught ourselves for like two weeks. We barricaded ourselves in. Really? Yeah. It was. It, yeah. Carnage. Yeah, it was carnage. It was just people fucking left, right, and centre. You know? Yeah. But it, was, uh, but it was good, you know. It didn't do any good. None of the tutors got reinstated, but... but well, uh, you know, sometimes you've got to just make a stand. Yeah, it was good. It was, you know, was on the news and everything. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, we've all got a story in us, but nobody tells a story quite like our next clip. And this was nominated by Sarah Heenan. And it is, of course, the legendary Michael Smiley. We're then going to nip back to our very first episode, our very first guest, the glorious First Lady of Nottingham, Vicky McClaw, And that was voted for by, of course, who else? The At McClure fans on Twitter. We're then going to pop over to Chorley to meet the one and only Joseph Gilgan. And Ali W messaged us to nominate that clip. We're then heading down south To my very good friend and quite brilliant Danny Mays. And who nominated that? You're asking. Who do you think? It was the at Danny Mays
10: fans on Twitter. Enjoy. That was my epiphany. I had a moment. I came off stage that night and I thought, everything's changed now. Everything's changed. This is, I found something. I couldn't sleep. I, was um, was the adrenaline just pumping roaring through? Roaring through me, roaring through me. How long was your first set? Four minutes. Was it just? Was it just an open mic? Open mic at the VD clinic in, in Bellsize Park. Now this may I may have completely
0: got my research wrong, or it might not be true. Did somebody
10: uh, want you to do it as a bet? Well, it was a sort of a bet. You know, um the shorthand is yes. Right. The long hand is Stuart persevered with me. And he you know, he'd signed me up for for um for courses and stuff like that. And I just didn't, wasn't really interested, you know. And he just kept persevering, bless him, you know. And yeah. we he said, Look, there's this so he he would say, Look, I find how you do this. Time out. They have open spot nights, you ring up you know what you should do is ring up, and see if you can get on. And I went, all right. So I ran this place, a VD clinic, from his, from Stuart's flat. And the guy, Kevin Anderson, who's married to Joe Caulfield, who's a stand-up. Yeah. And uh, he's a gruff sort of um, Clash fan. you will know, still get the flat top and leather jacket, you know, from, uh, from Scotland. And uh, he said we're full up this week. And I went, well, Stuart, come down? I said, well can I come down and have it? he says yeah, alright well I'll put you plus one on the door come down so Stuart says you should we went down to the gig and Stuart says you should try and get up you could do this and I go yeah, alright well he said go on back you, you get up i mean, alright I'll get up he says, all right, I'll get up next week I'll see if he's got a spot next week so Kevin had led us in we are standing at the bar and then he came past me and he went what did I say to you and I said oh you said it was you were full this week and, but you might have a spot next week He said, "All right." He went away and he came back and he says, "Um, "Somebody's dropped out. You're on first after the break." Oh, is it? Did when he said that? Did your heart go into you? My arsehole started playing the clarinet at that stage. (laughs) Backer Bilk, stranger (laughs) on the shore. Um, Yeah, it was just because you know that's it. it You know, it's, it's like a it's like a sky jump. It was like it had that feeling of oh my god, that's it. I heard. I think it was Will Smith said something I read somewhere the other week where he told a story that, you know, you're sitting around your mates and you talk about, why don't we do a sky jump? And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, you say, yeah, OK, I'll do it. And then that week later turns up and the night before you can't sleep and you're full of fear and you get into the onto, you get down to the airport, the aerodrome, and then you get into the plane and you're full of fear. And you get up to the top and then you open the door and you're, it feels like your miles up and you're just catatonic with fear and next minute you're out. And you're through the fear into bliss. And that's where it is. You're in bliss. Yeah. And, you know, that's what all the beauty is, is getting through the fear to the other side, get through the fear to the other side. And that night to be willing to get up and do it because I'd said I would do it. But also maybe somewhere in my mind, I knew this is a chance. Maybe this is, maybe what they're saying is true. Maybe and I think deep down inside there was a part of me believed that I could and maybe I was I I should do this stuff. And I got up and I made a joke about spotlights being in my face. It makes me feel homesick. And everybody just they're on the your side immediately. There's an explosion which was a bit like standing in front of the fire in front of my man dad's drunken mates, making them laugh. Yeah. So I knew I was in because I knew there's a purity in that. People aren't laughing. You can tell when people are laughing when they're patronising. You can tell when people are laughing because you what you've said's funny, not intellectually funny. It's it's funny. it's smashed them in the guts. Yeah, and that's the laughter I'm after. That was the laughter that all those years of being a child of being being homeless or whatever, when you're sitting around with people who don't have to fucking like you, who would rather dish you, make fun of you than with you. Yeah, to turn them, and you still have this reputation of being somebody who can. Who can you know who can do the do to then transmitting that onto the onto the stage and it working? That was that was the portal that I jumped into.
11: As we know, Craig, lines and lines of duty is hard.
0: Yeah, I mean speaking <laughs> of that I mean, do you prefer Get get getting a script, or do you prefer getting like say three lines saying this is kinda what your character is? Yeah. Go on, go forth and
11: it's it's a tricky one because say with something like if you compare this is England and line of duty, they both have the desired effect, do you know what I mean? They're both high end drama, but you couldn't improvise line of duty if you tried because we don't have the police knowledge. As much as we like to think we do now, we don't. (laughs) We just don't. So it's not something that would work with that kind of idea, with that concept, with, with those characters. Whereas with This Is England, if Shane tells me a line and I try and shoehorn it in, it sounds like I'm shoehorning it in. Yeah. So he kind of, he doesn't do that. He'll give you an idea of where the scene's going, what he's trying to get out of it. And also everybody around you is really supportive. So say people like Joe Gilgan, who, you know, can improvise anybody completely under the... I can't think of the phrase I'm trying to think of. (laughs) But anyway... We get the gist. We get the gist. You know that you're going to get gold from him. So, you know, I would never try and overperform if I'm in a scene with Joe because I know that he's just going to absolutely nail it. And my reaction as lol will suit exactly what we're doing. Do you know what I mean? Try not to feel like if there's a gap or if there's a silence, don't try and fill it. Just react to why ever that silence is there. And I love doing that. But I also love working with great writers where you just go, I can't wait to deliver that line. Do you know what I mean? And have a few pops at it as well. Because with say Line of Juicy or, or big dramas, you have got that ability to be able to go, can we go again? Because I know I can do that better. Or I know I want to do it differently. Yeah. And that's what's great about script.
0: But in a way, the core of it is—I well, suppose what you're saying is—when you're improvising, you're as good as who you're improvising with. Oh my because god! Because you, you're just constantly listening, and that's the same even when you've got a script front well, of yeah?
11: You know, like this. You know, and I don't—I don't think it's anybody's fault so much. But I find auditions really hard because the person you're often acting with can't act. Yeah. And I find that really challenging because I am an actor that likes to react. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I I have so much faith in the actors that I work with and so much respect and so much, like, admiration for them that when they're giving me something, it, it makes me want to give them something back. And that brings out a better performance in me and it brings out a better performance in them. So, you know when you're trying to get a job... Yeah. <laughs> ..you really want, yeah. and you think, right, on paper, that's my job, I know I can nail it, I really want to do it... There's nothing like that, you know, it's like, it scares me a bit, so that's good, and there's this, and there's a challenge in there, and whatever. And then you get in the room, and you're faced with a producer and a casting director, the director, somebody else that's been brought in just to to read the lines for you. And they're just reading the lines for the 10th time that day.
0: Probably bored out of their heads, yeah. So
11: they're not going to give you what you're going to give them. So you feel like, one, you feel you're maybe overacting to you've not got much to play with. Yeah. So it's really hard.
12: You'd think that, uh, as an actor, you'd you'd be able to understand yourself uh, well. I mean, I, I struggle. I do struggle. I, I'm getting better at it um, as I'm getting a little older. But I've struggled to know what I need, you know? And especially when it comes to roles, like, I've struggled to know how to censor myself against what I'm doing, you know? Um, and not to get too wrapped up in things and too, you know, too obsessive Um, because it can be really damaging and isolating, you know. I think going back to what we were talking about early on when I was just fucking rambling at the start, Um, you know, when you're gone, when you're away for a long time, you're in a fucking hotel room um, and on your days off, everyone's bloody in, aren't they, you know? It's not like we're all living this life of Riley. That's not how it goes. That can be that can become very. It can be can be very lonely if you're in that mindset, you know. And you've, I suppose that's another thing I've I've learned to live, be able to live with myself, you know, when I'm
0: doing these jobs. That's one thing I've learned. I suppose, and also teach myself recently. The older you get, the better you know yourself. Yeah. So then you know what you need. Mm-hmm. Not to go down that rabbit hole if it's if you're going down the loneliness step yeah. when you're away you go, Right, I need to get yeah, stop watching out. Ted Bundy fucking documentaries on YouTube. Yeah, don't do that. It's not mainly Ted
12: Bundy, I'll go through a few, you know what I mean? I'll not just watch the same documentary over and over again. I mean that's what that's definitely how you get yourself <laughs> ill. When I was really when I, when I first started, when I first started getting telework, um, when I was doing Emmerdale it was I really struggled, man. Like I, I, got so depressed, my fucking hair fell out. Do you remember that, Griff? For the record, that's a, that's a nod, Thomas's nodding. Yeah, and it looked like a, it was like a big butt like thing there, like that, uh, like a fit on old fifty p size patch of hair fell out of my head. I was why? Why? Why was
0: that? I was just so depressed. Because of what? Because of considering that I just didn't know how to cope, were, man. You were going home every day, weren't you? you weren't, no, no, I was living away. up there,
12: yeah. I was I was up there and living on with Todd for the first time. How old were you now? I would have been... Uh, fuck, young, man. I'd have been like 21 or something. 21, 22, something like that. You know, still had a, I had a good airline. I remember having a decent airline, better than now. And uh, <laughs> but at the back, it's like me air felt I remember all me hair felt falling she went. this little lady went in this makeup patch Have you always been at a little bald spot there? I don't know what are you talking about? She went. you've got this little patch anyway, so they had to fucking spray a little I had to get
0: makeup on it, you know um and do you think uh, you you were unhappy because you were worried or well it
12: turned you- it turned out that i you know I suffer with bipolar and we didn't know that we just I was down as being a kid who was probably under a lot of pressure but um when was that diagnosed that was diagnosed um after i finished pride uh, right so we not, uh, not 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 long, long ago. ago yeah so i've been on all the wrong drugs you know i've always been on some sort of an antidepressant or uh sedative or some shit to stop me going completely off the rails but um that being said you know i've recently i went to because i went to america and and in america they treat mental health differently and i remember thinking if i pay the money i can get a second diagnosis and they said it was like there was this guy said have you ever run down the street naked i said no he said, "Have you ever done like? Have you ever done stupid things that might hurt you or someone else?" I said, "Well, not really. Like, not that nothing. That's I won't put it past me. Like, but I don't remember that sort of a thing." You yeah. Know? Basically, by the time we got to this, the end of this conversation, it went on and on and on. All these sort of questions. Um, euphoria. Do you ever get euphoria to the point where you know you can't sleep for days? And you know, it turned out I didn't have you know if I have bipolar it's called, it's called something called cycler fucking hell it'd be I'd do well to remember this really want not I <laughs> I've
0: been it, brought it up. it'd be good to, to, finish, to finish, finish the story yeah it's not a deal breaker <laughs> we can always google
3: it
12: <laughs> Tom will you google it cycler something or other yeah he's gonna safari the situation right, he's right, right now he's on it Christ I feel like Joe Rogan <laughs> He has a bloke that does all that, doesn't he? But you know what? He talks. He actually also something. we get
0: one of those blokes that does that? Chatty fella. Nice chatty fella. It's only because we're a young little baby podcast. He's got on about episode 500. It's because a kid told him that once he sounded like Gary Barlow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> See,
0: this is the great thing about having a, uh, a really good mate of, of Griff's on the podcast. We can get a lot of... Secret information. Oh, I can give you tons. Yeah, (laughs) I think that that should just be a whole other podcast in itself. To be honest,
12: yeah, man, we can do that. We'll have another night. Get Griff. Bring, bring him down. (laughs) Bring him down like the rest
5: of us. An unforgettable and joyous and fantastic time. Um, Made great friends. Had a lot of laughs. And learnt a hell of a lot, you know? And it was only when I was there that I met uh, my first acting teacher, Dennis Noonan. I actually presented at the Teachers Awards on Wednesday night this I week. I yeah. And um, I gave a shout-out to Dennis, who was my first acting teacher, who is an absolute card, one of the funniest characters you'll ever meet. And... He was just extraordinary for me. And we just hit it off from the word go. And he was the first person. He, he broke all the rules, Dennis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And what it was, it was that sort of thing of getting you into the space, freeing you up, losing your inhibitions, and just putting you into a scenario and just letting you go. I'd never, I didn't know what improvisation was. And it was like a light bulb moment, like going to Wembley and seeing Michael Jackson, a light bulb moment. Of going, wow, you can use your imagination and go off at a tangent and say anything, what you feel, and just... There's no rules. There's no rules. Yeah. And you can make people laugh, and you can make people cry, and you can do all this sort of stuff, you know.
0: So was like, he a massive inspiration huge, for you Huge.
5: Very close to him now. One of my best friends, uh, indebted to him. He f- I feel like, you know, you you get great teachers, don't you, along yeah. the way. Another teacher I should mention, actually, Italia Conti. As you know, I love my artwork as well. I do a lot of oil painting, yeah. not as much as I'd like to. But um, I had another hugely influential teacher there called Jane Todd, who took me through my GCSEs. Who is an absolute inspiration for that for Italia Conti and a wonderful teacher. She's still there. She's still there. Yeah, oh. she gets phenomenal results. She got me an A star in art. She just. Both those teachers, Dennis and Jane, were teachers in which they listened to you, they listened to the individual pupil, and they fired their imagination. And they used the strength of each individual and just let them soar.
0: So there we go. That is end of part one of this very special Two Shot podcast. Your Two Shot podcast. Thanks so much. You can have a break, come back to us later. I'm going to go and make a cup of tea because my voice is getting a little bit croaky and I will see you for part two. Take easy. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.